Now is the time we bring you the virtual stage of our Achieving Optimal Health Conference at Georgetown University. To experience this talk with all the videos, slides, and graphics, go to bbrconsulting.us and click on Conference. One more time, visit bbrconsulting.us. Thanks for staying curious and for living your best life with us. The way we take care of ourselves is ever evolving. And what we know for sure is that our mind and spirit are linked to our physical body and that our wellness seems to extend into our communities and the planet we all share. It is very, very clear that wellness is interconnected. We love spending time with you to explore and practice the breakthroughs, the insights, and the passions of incredible people helping us all see the world in a whole new light. This is HealthGig. Today, we're really excited because we have part two of our conversation with Dr. McAllister. If you missed last week's discussion with Dr. McAllister, be sure to go back and listen because it was incredible. So again, we are thrilled to have you back with us, Dr. McAllister. Welcome, Ren. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can you talk a little bit about like nerve compression? If you can talk about that and how we can prevent that. And if you do have carpal tunnel or something. No, it's probably one of the most common things. I actually went back and looked over the last two years. And the two most common things that I deal with are what are called trigger fingers, which are locking and gets a swelling of a tendon and then carpal tunnel syndrome, which is the, basically nerve compression. And there are some other sites in the body around the elbow that can be affected as well, but, but much less commonly. And so many of the people with carpal tunnel syndrome also have diabetes, for example, and other health conditions. So a lot of the inflammation will drive it. There's a list of maybe 50 different things that are associated with it. I gave a talk once and I put this slide up and it was so busy. And I said, that's the point, right? Like there's a hundred different things that seem like they're associated with it. But what it gets down to is forceful, repetitive grip. So what will, independent of a risk factor or something, like if you're just mechanically talking about the nerve and what will drive it, forceful, repetitive gripping with a wrist that's flexed or extended bent. So non-neutral, basically. So if you're doing a lot of forceful, repetitive gripping, wrist is bent, either bent backwards or bent forwards, uh, that can be a risk factor. Keyboarding and typing, it's a little bit of a misnomer. There's a nice Danish study done where they looked at it and there's always, every study has flaws, but they found that keyboarding was not associated with carpal tunnel syndrome. There's a lot of press in there, but one of the issues was the study, how it was designed, it, it's sort of almost selective for people who could keyboard. In other words, I know if I sit and type, you know, writing papers or whatnot for a bit of time, I'll definitely feel my hands swell up a little bit and it feels a little tight. If I did that every day, I might develop something too. But fortunately, I can take breaks and things. So there may be that there's people that are designed or their body is able to tolerate that and other people aren't. So everyone has an individual variability. Bio-individuality could be a term you could label it. And so some people could keyboard forever and never have problems. Some people, they're on there for 20 minutes and they start to have issues. And that could be because of their anatomy and things like that. So there's some things that are intrinsic to you that may drive it in terms of your anatomy and how your body is designed that you just aren't mechanically designed to do this activity. And then biologically or physiologically, you can have medical conditions that can predispose you. And then most of the time it gets back to rest and recovery, because even if you have these setups, if you're giving yourself a break, if you're performing stretches, you can actually alleviate a lot of this. And so what can you do to prevent that? Well, you know, ergonomic adaptations and setups during COVID, everyone kind of came out of the office, went home and you went from these desk setups to sitting on your couch, laying back, you know, things like that. So ergonomic setups, 
in the sense of, again, not mechanically disadvantaging your bodies, but putting your body in a, an appropriate position to carry out functions. And then taking breaks, frequent breaks, stretching. It can be just simple as, you know, stretching your hands and, and your hands and your wrists. There are some exercises called nerve glides, or, which are helpful. In the body, the nerve doesn't really move. It's sort of static in its position. And the tendons and muscles move around the nerve. And so one of the things that happens either from injury or if you just spend a lot of time in this single position is you can start to develop what we call adhesions or you can basically, you can start to get sticky. And so if your tendons or your muscles start to kind of get sticky to a nerve and then you try to move those muscles, it'll start stretching the nerve. And nerves do not like to be stretched. And so when they're under pressure, if you increase the length of a nerve by 10%, you decrease the blood flow by about 50%, we know from studies. And so if your nerve is under pressure or like around the elbow or something, every time you bend the elbow, you're stretching the nerve and that's causing injury to the nerve. Blood flow to a nerve, people say, oh, I feel like the blood flow to my hand's getting cut off. Well, it's not really getting cut off, but if you have diabetes, if you have vascular disease, yes, those very tiny blood vessels feeding the nerve are struggling to provide the nerve with adequate blood supply. So in a sense, that's happening, but your hand won't fall off. It won't you know, suddenly stop <laughs> blood supply, but that's happening. What is that when that happens, when your fingers fall asleep and you do feel the tingling and stuff? It's yeah. You may remember when you were a kid, you know, you sit on your leg and you get up and, and your leg tingles. That's pressure on the nerve. I've woken up at night a couple of times and I remember waking up my wife is like, look at my arm. Like I just lifted up and it flops. And that's pressure on your nerve. And so if it happens, your body adjusts to it. You won't wake up, but you'll roll over and if people are really inebriated on drugs, they actually won't move. And there's a condition called compartmental syndrome where they lay on the nerve and muscle for so long, it goes through all these phases and it ends up causing a tremendous problem. Well, if you're not inebriated, if you're not on drugs, your body's going to adjust and roll over, but it's pressure on the nerve. So when your hands fall asleep, I always tell people like, look, tell me your hand falls asleep. You talk on the phone, drive a car, read a book. Like, yeah, how'd you know? It's like, well, because any of those activities involve bending your wrist. You talk on the phone, your wrist is bent. Bend your elbow up, you know, you're bending your elbow. If you drive a car, you bend your wrists. If you read a book, you bend your wrists. And so all those things involve bending your wrist, which increases pressure on the nerve. The reason we we're talking about not bending your wrist back or forward is because the lowest pressure on the nerve is when the nerve is flat. When the wrist is flat, that's the lowest pressure. And that's why one of the things people can do, very simple, is to put a splint on their wrist to keep their wrist flat at night. Okay. We all become little fetuses. We curl up at night and, you know, yes. and that's normal, but that'll increase the pressure on the nerve. And so if you put your wrist flat, you can avoid that from happening. I have kind of a voyeuristic question. I don't know if that's the right word, but what's the worst thing you've seen come into your office with a hand, with someone's comment? Probably the worst thing. Well, that's a good question. Fortunately, most of what we do is pretty happy. Uh, <laughs> that's yeah. good. You know, one of the worst things I saw was a guy that came with a swelling in his wrist and his insurance company, choice of his employer, wouldn't allow him the treatment he needed. And so three months go by, swelling gets bigger. Six months go by, you know, we need to take this out. You know, nine months go by and finally I took a picture and I, I like, give this to your insurance people. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, this guy's mass is getting larger. This is ludicrous that you guys aren't allowing surgery. Like, this is nuts, right? Why do they allow surgery? It turns out to be cancer. So he'll be fine. He, he had to go down to a cancer center, second surgery. I don't think it, it cost him his limb, but it was unnecessary. And it's because of a system designed of people that don't know what they're doing, trying to like gatekeep and preventing you from taking care of someone, giving them the care they need because of 
some, you know, we used to say little old blue hair lady in the basement, but basically someone who isn't in front of the patient is trying to dictate what gets done. That's probably the worst thing because to me, it was unnecessary. It was a system issue that was impacting the care of the individual. You know, people now, like, for example, me, (laughs) I'd fallen like a ski, fallen on my thumb and stuff. And so they went in to sort of fix it because they thought that I was young enough and all that stuff. And it never worked. Is there anything you do now for things that didn't work so many years ago and the injury was then and then now? Or what what do you do for that? It just kind of depends on if that was a long time ago, there's a terrific, I'm not a big implant guy. Old school is the right term, but I do a lot of stuff with K-wires and all these implant companies in the world of orthopedics, especially it's all this technology and they want to sell you all this stuff. And what we know is that, you know, these robots and things, the reality is they're not really any better than an expert surgeon. They tend to be more marketing gimmicks. I sort of tease my joint partners about this, but in the spine, they, you know, want to help you put a screw. I, I train at a place where we put a lot of these screws in. If you know what you're doing, you don't need a robot to do it. So having said that, there is a terrific implant they developed that's really helped with this kind of surgery. It's a device that takes away a lot of the challenge we had before with the previous technology. So the answer is, if you don't have a lot of secondary change like arthritis and things, there's a great way to reconstruct that ligament that can give you stability. And the reason that we're excited about, maybe the wrong word, but re- interested in fixing that ligament is because there aren't a lot of good options if you develop arthritis there. It's basically a fusion of what you're left with. So that ligament is particularly important for stability. Many things that go wrong, you know, we talk about salvage procedures for lack of better words. So I just I saw a patient just recently, she has an unusual condition in her wrist called Kindbox disease, where one of the bones loses blood supply. And we were going through the treatment algorithm. She's trying to avoid surgery. And I said, well, your, your bone has now reached the point where it's kind of broken and you could do things to try to restore blood supply. But the reality is probably a salvage procedure would, because the goal is your outcome. For me, it's always, I don't care about x-rays look like, I'm all about function, right? It's like, how do you want to use your hand? And how can we help you achieve that outcome? And so we probably need to move to a salvage procedure. So there are secondary procedures that can be done to try to restore function if primary ones don't work. But the first principle is to fix deformity at the side of deformity. We say we like to fix things primarily because you can avoid all these secondary issues. And I guess this is part of taking care of yourself and health, but how do you deal with bone health? I mean, if you're dealing with people with osteoporosis and that kind of thing, how does that play into what you do? I'm actually finished editing a book on osteoporosis with these principles, holistic guide to basically osteoporosis and managing it with these foundational health principles because it's largely avoidable and it gets back to foundational health. Bone health is driven by the term is sarcopenia. So it's a gradual loss of muscle. It happens to everyone, begins probably in your 30s and then continues over life. And bone health is no different. There are things that you can do conditions you can have that will predispose medications that you might take or things. But for most people, it's inactivity. Uh, And this gets back to this, you know, resistance training and the importance of it. So it all kind of ties together. But there's proactive steps you can take at any age to improve your bone health. And we see a lot of hip fractures. I just last night was in the operating with a gentleman who was going in for something and slipped and fell and he broke his hip. He got in at needed surgery. So it's done elsewhere, but he ended up on RER for a complication. And most people who fall and break their hip, the reality is they probably broke their hip and then fell because the bone is weak under high tension in what's called the femoral neck, the area of the bone that breaks. And as a result, things happen so fast. People say, my knee gave out. 
or they'll say, gosh, you know, my knee gave out and I fell. It's like, well, actually you, something happened, you had pain and then your body inhibits all the muscle and gravity takes over and then you fall. When your hip breaks, it probably broke because the bone was weak and then you fell to the ground most of the time. And that's a function of bone quality, which is probably 90% preventable in most cases. So you're writing this book on osteoporosis or bone health. Yeah. And the bone can change, right? So yeah. this idea that you have osteoporosis, you can reverse it? Correct. 100%. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Because, you know, so many people don't know that. And also there's all that medication that I think you have to really research, right? A bone's a living organism. It responds to stress. And we talk about this in Fractures Healing. When you break a bone and, and you put it back together, it goes through a healing process. It's a race between the bone healing and the hardware you put in failing. Once the bone's healed, the hardware's irrelevant. That healing process, when we talk about bone being a living organism, it responds to stress and stress is load. And that's why when you hear people talk about, you know, weight-bearing exercise and things like that to build bone health, that's why that's important because your bone will respond to stress. If you get to the point where in, you know, osteopenia is the kind of the first step with low bone density, and then there's osteoporosis, and it's a sort of arbitrary definition based on these tests, but it's just a sign that your bone is weak. And the reality is what we're really after is what's your risk for fracture? Because really what happens is the sad statistic is if you break your hip, about a quarter of people are dead within a year. And the reason for that is the hip fracture is a symptom. And it's a symptom of a lot of other things, but frailty and loss of independence is a huge consequence of having these fractures. So if your bone density is low, you absolutely can reverse it. And it gets back to the fundamental issues of diet, exercise, and then you have to sleep and manage stress because those are contributory. There are some people who the risk may be high enough that they may be interested in taking a medicine. And this is where one of the challenges with medicine the people that go into medicine are very well-meaning, but the structure of the system is sort of upside down. And it's this idea of sick care because to get people to change behavior and change habits is very hard. I live in Seattle and the Seattle Mariners, there's a great commercial. We had Lou Pinella, who was just nominated for the Hall of Fame, was our manager. He's a notoriously gruff guy, right? And they have these great commercials that they made. And one of them was him. He was a psychotherapist. And it shows, you know, Dr. Pinella's office and it's a glass door and he's counseling the person behind there. Just get up and do it. You know, he's kind of yelling. <laughs> you know, that, that was his personality, right? And <laughs> it's like, the reality is you can't just tell someone to get up and do it because there's so much baked into changing habits, changing mindset, changing behavior. And the way that our system is designed, you come in and people only have five, 10 minutes. And then at the primary care level, they're just swamped with all these other somewhat meaningless, you know, all the insurance companies want you to have all these checklists and do all these things. And so there's so much crap basically that's thrown in front of them. So often you go into your doctor and they sit behind a computer screen. And what you don't realize is it's not that they don't want to interact with you. It's they're checking all these freaking boxes on a computer screen because the insurance company says they have to, because, yeah. you know, they need to keep the lights on and it's stressful for them. It burns them out. So a lot of them have gone to what we call concierge care medicine, basically, but not everyone can afford that or has the ability to do that. But that's where you're basically trying to get back is the interaction of taking care of you. And then you have a little more runway to help people. But even in those situations, we can tell you what to do, but it's kind of messy to deal with mindset and behaviors. It's easier to give you a prescription. And, mm -hmm. and you, yeah. And then people also, the behavior of the consumer, the patient is, there are these new drugs that have come out. It's fascinating uh, for weight loss. 
And it's funny, I was sitting six, eight months ago, we do a clinic in a primary care office and I was listening to the MAs, they're, they're just complaining about, God, all these freaking pre-authorizations we have to do. This is nuts. We're pre-authorizing these drugs all the time and it's overwhelming them. And I was kind of like, oh, that's interesting. That's so, and then all of a sudden in the last six months, these drugs have kind of blown up and now there's a shortage. And one of my, I was talking to MA yesterday in clinic and she said, yeah, one of my husband is a health nurse at a large company and one of the coworkers is on them. And she goes, she's not even really overweight and uh, she's on these drugs. And I was saying, you know, there's going to be some problem with these drugs. Like you cannot mess with your body and not have a consequence. You know, back in the 70s, OBGYNs gave a drug called thalidomide to help mothers and then babies are born little flippers. Not that extreme, but you just can't mess with mother nature and not have a consequence. Well, now we're seeing that you know, we're seeing multiple reports to the FDA, hundreds of cases of mental health issues or, you know, thoughts of suicide, things like that. Well, one of the challenges, these drugs inhibit the reuptake of serotonin, which helps us feel with wellness. Well, the second brain is your gut. You make a tons of serotonin in the gut. Well, these drugs affect how you absorb things in your gut. To have sort of those kinds of issues, probably not unpredictable. And then the other thing I just saw two or three days ago, 40% of the weight loss from these drugs is coming from lean muscle. So it's like, oh my God, like you're completely messing with your physio. The last thing you want to do is lose lean muscle. Yeah. You want to lose body fat, not muscle. So if you start to lose lean muscle, it's a downward spiral. Like that's the whole sarcopenia thing. So now you've taken sarcopenia, which is a natural physical consequence of how we age and what happens and put it into hyper overdrive uh, or these drugs. So yes, there are physiologic benefits to losing weight. You know, one of my friends is a bariatric surgeon and he's absolutely seen people have metabolic phenomenal changes like diabetes reverses and things like that. But that's with surgery, which is kind of extreme. Some people need it and some people choose it. But with these drugs, it's kind of the same thing where we're trying to change something so easily. And this gets back to people want a pill, right? And it's easy for us to give them to them. Oh, you come in, you're, you know, you're unhappy with your weight. We give you this drug. You lose weight. You feel better. You feel great about seeing me. Life is great, right? Well, fundamentally, though, you can't short circuit the system. There's going to be some consequence. So, mm -hmm. people, are you talking about the drugs like Ozempic? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. SGPL2 or whatever. They're everywhere now. So, it's funny. Now it's filtered into surgery because in the last month, I had a patient on these drugs and the anesthesia doctors, they have to be off them for seven days before they have surgery. There's some consequence to having anesthesia that we used to never worry about. This I joke in hand surgery, I can operate on anyone because we just put your hand to sleep for 95% of what I do. So I don't have to worry about all these medical problems and we can basically use surgery on anyone. But now with these drugs, it affects anesthesia. So you can't have surgery for seven days. I wow. don't remember wow. why. Yeah. What about those other new drugs that are out that people are taking for eczema and it's clearing up their eczema? It's that new generation drug. That's fascinating. So I live in the Northwest and hand surgery, we used to do a lot of surgery for rheumatologic conditions, rheumatoid arthritis. I started medical school in 1996 and training in about 2000. There is zero, almost zero surgery for inflammatory arthritis because Imidex was a company here. I can't, Remicade maybe was the first drug or whatever their drug was. So all those trials were done here. And so our patient population was treated very early on. These drugs are tremendous at shutting down immune issues. A lot of these conditions fundamentally are immune system driven. So eczema, your body is fighting itself. And that's why these drugs work really well. They also have consequences. They're high powered modulating your immune system. 
if you're on them, we can't do surgery for three or four weeks because we have to time you between cycles and things like that because it affects your immune system. Well, fundamentally, though, a lot of these conditions, if you go back and look deep enough, there's an inflammatory component to them, which gets back to lifestyle issues and things like that. Again, preventing these conditions, if you go back far enough, it's how we sleep, think, eat, and move. It's not that you can fix them all, but if you go back, stress is a tremendous influence. And if you look at people that have these conditions, you'll find these things cropping up. And I don't know if it's chicken or egg, but you know, if you were to ask someone who has these conditions, we predict some other issues they might have, you could probably hit pretty close to the mark. If you fix your foundational health, a lot of these things might clear up. And we've seen there are definitely instances where people will address these other issues and you address their foundational health for whatever reason, they may back into it unknowingly, but these other things clear up. People change foods they eat, they get sleep, they manage stress, and this other stuff seems to like solve itself. But these drugs, if needed, are high powered. One of the challenges is in the late 90s, the purple pill, right? It was direct-to-consumer advertising and it was ask your doctor, right? And so they're driving the consumer with these messages and it's all marketing, right? So you have eczema. Yeah, it's not great. Nobody wants to have or psoriasis, right? You know, people are very self-conscious about their image. And so they're showing you, oh, you can go to yoga class and not have plaques or whatever. So then they're driving you to then ask your doctor and that's the outcome you want. But there are consequences to all these medicines. Again, you're messing with your body and there's huge downstream effects. And we don't always know what they are ahead of time. It's a trade-off. It's so inspiring that you've incorporated this foundational health into your practice and everything. Why did you choose the hand as opposed to, Yeah, <laughs> you could have chosen any Picture. other part of the body to do surgery? Well, it, it's kind of funny. I When I started medicine, you know, early on medicine, medicine versus surgery was a pretty easy distinction for me. I, I like to do things I like problems that are solvable. I'm pretty mechanical. I played sports in college. I had a neighbor's North Peak surgeon growing up, so I kind of had some exposure to that. I like fixing things. And so very early on, that part was easy. You know, medicine versus surgery, I'm more about action than I'm about talking. And so then as I got into surgery, there's all kinds of different things that you can do. And two things. One is, it's kind of funny. If you look at orthopedists, probably the second most common, there's a, a great book I read by a Rebecca Taylor or something, but you look at the behavioral aspects of people in medicine and the number two specialty for orthopedists was family practice. And if you look at a family practice, it's kind of very fast paced as well, very episodic and fast paced and you like helping people and very busy. And so I like helping people. I like things that get better. Orthopedics is like that. If I wanted to deal with people dying, I'd be a heart surgeon because <laughs> unfortunately, you know, heart surgery, you could do everything yeah. right or neurosurgery and still have a terrible outcome. And you just that's the way it rolls. So then when I got into hand surgery, there's a lot of surgery. You don't have to go looking for it because there's a ton of it. Problems are very fixable. There's not a lot of, we call it sports magic. <laughs> I tease my sports partners, but a lot, a lot of voodoo. You're not shrinking things and you know doing things like that. And then the funny thing was I came off the spine surgery service and I would come home and I'd find myself putting my feet up and I, I didn't know why. And then uh, I got off the hand surgery service and I would come off after operating 12, 14 hours and felt fine. And I realized I was sitting down, sitting down to operate. And so it just, I was like, God, I could do this till I'm 100. You know, I can operate 24 hours. You know, I'm up 12 hours in a spine surgery and I've got to stretch my hamstrings. So hand surgery was an easy distinction because people get better. I like how people get better and it's very fast paced. And 
uh, like a shark, right? If I sit for too long, I'll probably drown. So <laughs> got to keep moving. Well, Ren, this is amazing and so interesting to hear about you and your life and how you're helping people. Yeah, and it's really, you're quite an inspiration that you are a doctor that sees the whole person, which is really kind of unusual. We're so thrilled that you joined us to share that idea, that philosophy. Yes, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I realized that looking back over what I've done, it's sort of incomplete care. It's complete to the patient because they came to see me for a hand problem. But when I think about helping the individual, really the impact can go far beyond anything I do in an operating room. And the goal is to really help people kind of win at the game of life. And if they can hit these fundamental foundational health things, then you can do anything you want. Everyone's going to have their own idea of what's important to them and what success is to them. But none of us can get around the health part. Like if you feel like crap every day, it doesn't matter if you're running a, you know, a huge company or you're just trying to help your kids get to school in the morning. If you feel like crap, nothing's going to work well. And when you feel great, everything's easier. And so trying to help people with that. It's funny, I had a colleague who came in to see me and, and she told me that, and we we're sort of resonating on these and she's opened a concierge practice and we had these kind of ideas and concepts. And she's like, you know, it's funny. I spent the first 20 years of my career putting people on medicine. I'm trying to take that next 20 and take them off medicine. And so there's people out there that get it, but it's a behavioral thing on both sides. And nobody's at fault for it. It's just we're, we're the human animal. Everyone wants to find the shortest path to get what they want and get what they need. But the realization, if people can realize that achieving foundational health is much easier than you think. It's not rocket science. It's fundamental principles and behaviors that our body is designed to do for hundreds of thousands of years. Our body is designed. We, we came out of the womb with what we need. All life has done is basically interfered with that, interrupted it. That's what it boils down to. Left to our devices without these external forces, we would instinctively go to bed when it got dark. We'd get up when it got light. We'd eat when we're hungry. We'd choose foods that are nutritious. But life intervenes and you know we get busy, we get stressed, and it just changes the game. Well, thank you, doctor. So good to hear all of that and wonderful to have you on Health Geek today. Yeah, well, I appreciate you guys and your platform for trying to get this message out because it's slow. It'll be slow, but people will get it. There's other people that feel the same way. And the more people that hear this and from the different frames of reference, the patient I just saw yesterday and, and it was funny because she said, we were talking about walking and she's like, God, you know, people after we do all this stuff, but it's so refreshing to hear just walking. I'm like, yeah, just walk. You don't need to spend hours doing spin classes and just get out and walk. We're, our body was designed to walk. We're to joke with people that, you know, scar tissue is an adaptive process. Scar tissue is how we adapt to healing. We're running from a saber-toothed tiger. The quicker you scarred up, got stiff and got back out there, then, the, you know, you're better off. Well, today we don't need to go hunt for food. We have 7-Eleven and, you know, and Safeway and things like that. So scar is maladaptive today, but we were walking around for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. That's all you need to do. So people understand it. And the more people that hear the message, then they can spread it, can kind of buy, get real viral from there. You guys are a big part of that. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>